Welcome to the Just Muslim Podcast. I'm your host, Zakir Khan. And I'm your other host, Anjabin Ashraf. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a variety of different issues, but you're probably wondering right now, what the heck is the Just Muslim Podcast? Yeah, Zakir, what is it? I Wait, mean, I'll tell you. Oh, Can I tell you? Idea. Don't yeah. speak over me, bro. Sorry. Thanks. Okay. So, Just Muslim is really a podcast about all the things Muslims are and that we do. It's not just about we're only interested in Muslim issues, right? We're interested in food and fun and travel and mental health and so many other things, and that's what this podcast is. We're really glad to have you on our show today, listening with us, and uh, let's let me give you a little preview as to what's to come on the show. First thing we'll be talking about on today's show is frustration with the political process. The second thing we'll be talking about is mosque issues, basically, what sisters have to deal with regards to all the walls that us Muslim <sighs> brothers unfortunately put up. It's not easy out there, ladies. I know you know what I'm talking about. Alright, then we'll be talking with Afad Sheikh about his experience working at CARE and all of the various things that he went through as a social justice advocate on behalf of the Muslim community. Finally, uh, we'll be talking about issues that Anjum wants to just sound off about in a segment we like to call Anjum is, is angry. angry. It happens a lot, but I think rightfully so. Don't you think those happen? Uh, sometimes. You know, you don't get to determine what feelings are okay for me, Mr. That's very true. Thank you. All right. All right, so we got an election coming up in this country. Oh, man, it's coming up real soon. It's so exciting. By country, we mean the United States of America. Oh, is that is it still going to be a country after what's about to go down? I don't know. <laughs> Texas has been trying to, like, peace out for a while, yeah. at least according to my sources. And if California is smart, they would have already left, but you know, that's California. <laughs> so we're just chilling in the sun for way too oh, long. Oh, man. So on this episode, we wanted to talk about just the frustration that a lot of people have with the political process, and especially if you're Muslim and you're sitting around right now and you're not attracted to the two candidates, you might find yourself feeling like you're at the margins. Uh, And I know for me, you know, one of the things I like to do is because I'm so involved in in social justice work is see where Muslim social justice activists and leaders and people that sort of apply that moniker to themselves, what they're thinking and feeling. And over the past, you know, month or two, uh, ever since the DNC wrapped up, uh, there's just been a lot of Muslim leaders telling me I have to vote for Hillary Clinton. And uh, I don't want to. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, I, I'm sorry, you know, if I could just tell them, I'm sorry, I just don't want to vote for someone that likes the drone strike people. And that doesn't sound good to me, and I don't get excited, and when people try to tell me, oh, well, the alternative you're going to get is Donald Trump, I think to myself, yeah, but, you know, I really thought our faith taught us to have principles, no matter what the situation is, and it's funny how quickly those principles have gone away. Yeah, I mean, I, okay, listen, I can see both sides of it, you know, I see the fear people have with... Donald Trump being elected, right? He has some really overtly racist, sexist, pretty much anything that's not white, rich, and male, right? And I see the fear in, you know, him possibly getting elected. So Hillary Clinton, for many people, has become a keeping Trump out of office vote. I don't feel that way. And that's because I'd rather vote with my principles. You know, someone on Facebook that we know said, you got to vote with your principles, otherwise you really can't call them principles. And I think part of the frustration maybe is that this two-party system that we kind of, you know, has been around for as long as we can remember, um, or as long as we've been voting, is problematic, right? I mean, we know, even if we vote for a third-party candidate, that there's no way in heck they're going to win. And that is the fear of everyone in the DNC, is that the independent voters are the ones that are going to basically take votes away from Hillary. And then we have a Trump presidency, Mm -hmm. you know? And I would say, oh, well, to be honest, um, I would rather know that I voted with my conscience and my Mm -hmm. principles, and we have to live under an idiot, um, than say that I voted out of some for someone out of fear, right? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, that excuse has been around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know? listen, pe- people told me that uh, you know Bush is going to get elected again, you know, and that was the thing when you looked at that pivotal 2000 election and you had Al Gore going against George Bush. The opposition to all of that was that you know what, like. 
these two guys are just one and the same. And I've yet to see a real concrete analysis come out that they were going to be different that in the way that they handled any number of things. Because even if you look towards the Obama presidency that's come after George W. Bush, uh, you're seeing a lot of the policies on a national security level continued, right? Like you're seeing the continued detainment of Muslims. You're seeing the continued policies of drone striking. Um, you might have seen a little bit of a scale down with regards to foreign intervention, I think that's been one of the hallmarks of Obama. He doesn't want to become foreign, like involved in a, in a bunch of conflicts and put a lot of boots on the ground. But I think from a national security level, and, and Democrats understand this, if they look weak on national security, there's not a likelihood that they're going to win the election. So they have to come out and sort of use a lot of rightist views or a lot of pe- what people would claim are centrist views. Now, with regards to all that, dude, I'm just tired of seeing people go off to war, number one, and I'm tired of seeing people come home in body bags, and I'm also tired of just seeing, you know, and and this is a thing for us Muslims, I'm really tired of just seeing people suffering. And, you know, shame on me. I I honestly just feel this way. I'm just like, shame on me for caring about Muslims who live abroad. You know, how dare you care about those Muslims? You should care about, you know, we should be selfish. We should just care about how this is going to impact American Muslims. Yeah, I mean, and and to be fair, like, even Clinton's campaign has made domestic Muslims, American Muslims, only valuable in so much as we report our own. We are, Mm -hmm. you know, basically narcs, uh, narking on our own people. Mm -hmm. That is our value in this society. It's not the amazing advances we brought to science and medicine and now to media. No, we are limited to this box of be spies for us, go out there and be spies for us. Mm -hmm. It's idiotic, you Mm -hmm. know? And, and, and it was just so fascinating to me because, you know, you've got Khizr Khan speaking out at the DNC about his experiences, and I certainly want to honor and value those experiences, right? Uh, but it just seemed like we've been tokenized by the Hillary campaign in that you either fight for this country or you uh, report on other people, and then you are a part of the accepted Muslims. You can't just be a Muslim who just goes out and, you know, works in their community as a doctor, and is saving people's lives, or as a mental health therapist, where you're helping people feel better about themselves and having the like improve their self concept. You can't be a professor that you know helps students exercise their freedom of speech and their voices. You can't be an athlete that shows that hey to other Muslims like you can achieve this. You can't really be any of those things. You have to be our self defined sort of. We have to be. You have to be the criteria that we say is acceptable. And to me, that's not what it means to be an American Muslim. Absolutely. And I think it's really limiting in terms of our identity and who we are. And that's why we have a Just Muslim podcast. That's why it's called Just Muslim, because Mm -hmm. we are just Muslim, which also means that we are so many more things. We don't have to put all these tokens behind it. You know, we're not radical Muslims. We're not liberal Muslims. We're just Muslim, you know, which also, aka, we're also human. And we have Mm -hmm. other things we love and we lose, you know, and we grieve and we celebrate. There's so many. We experience the same things that everyone else experiences. Mm -hmm. And it seems like none of the campaigns this year have honored that. And, you know, I think what, what it really leads to for a lot of people, especially that are in this camp of where they feel they're feeling politically marginalized at the moment, is that there's this feeling that comes across is that we're just not good enough. You know, like we're, we're, we sort of saw a lot of civil rights movement in this country within the past decade. Um, a lot of movements and strides have been made with regards to gay rights. But I think where there's this country still needs a lot of growth is with, with regards to the Muslim population that exists within America. Like, you're hearing stories of religious dimer- discrimination in the workplace, um, people not being allowed to pray, people not getting proper breaks. Um, it, it's just surprising to me that, in, you know, in, in this year, that that is still an issue and that that is not wholly accepted. And then when you take issues like that and you show it to the majority of the people in the country, they're just like, oh, well, you know what, they should just have to deal with it. You know, that's what religious liberty is. It's just like, you just have to deal with it. You're not good enough. Um, The color of your skin or the faith that you have just makes us focus upon, um, you know what, you're just never going to quite be fully American. You might be Americ, but you're not fully American. And that is so frustrating um, to just be shut out, you know, to to feel like you don't have value. Mm -hmm. 
So what do we do with that, Zachary? What do we do with all that frustration? Well, you know what? Like, you know, people say, like, the quick fixes, you know, uh, Jill Stein sounds like a good candidate. And I think one criticism that I've heard of the Green Party that I, I think I would be ready to acknowledge is that they don't do enough to boost local candidates that are down ticket. You know, and that's where you're really going to build your base. That's where you're going to really build a lot of movement and support is really taking that money that you're getting on a national level and then boosting it into some local election where some guy can really make a shot at changing things. And it's not just exclusive to the Green Party. You know, I I know that um, back in San Francisco, I think it was the city. I might be wrong about this. It's like the city controller race or something like that, where I think it was... um, there was this guy named Matt Gonzalez who used to run on the Green Party ticket with Ralph Nader, and he was running, and he, you know, he, I think he lost something by like four percent, and people were like, "Damn it!" You know, like honestly, "Damn it!" Like this guy had come so far, and one of the great things was in, you know, in two thousand four when Matt Gonzalez was running with Nader, I believe, uh, I could be wrong again. Uh, you know, I actually spoke with him. I mean, how often do presidential candidates do you get to even talk to a presidential candidate? And I asked him, you know, like, and he was, uh, he was probably the first honest and probably the last honest politician I'll ever run into. But he had this really fantastic point where I was like, you know, you didn't really talk about military intervention in your speech. And I was just curious, like, do you guys have an official stance on it? And he, he's like, you know what, man, to be frank with you, we just don't have an official stance on the issue that you brought up. And I was like, whoa, whoa, because, you know, I've tried to breach any number of different subjects with Muslim Congress people before, and they just refuse to answer the question, right? It's always like a ducking, like they can't say something because they don't want that to get back to their voters, or they just can't make clear stances on issues. And I was like, you know what, how refreshing is it, it is that this guy is like, you know what, I honestly just don't have a good answer for you, so I'm not going to give you an answer. Uh, but you're only going to get that, and you're only going to get people like that when they're coming out of local elections, coming up through the system, who want to make that change and, ha- and you know, sort of feel supported. Yeah, and I think it's really important to realize that no one candidate is going to be the perfect candidate, right? Absolutely. And that's really important to recognize. You need to, or we need to, recognize what is the best for us as humanity, as Muslims, and not just American Muslims, right? And there's been a tremendous othering in the way that we use drones and the lack of responsibility this government has felt, and not just this government, let's be honest, European governments have been using drones as well and killing innocent people. Um, And so that being said, most of us are probably going to go to vote um, next week and feel embattled within us, and that's okay. As long as you can say that you didn't vote, in my opinion, as long as you can say you didn't vote out of fear, but you voted out of principle and thinking forward, because nothing really good good comes out of fear. You mm-hmm. know, fear puts you in a place where you can't think correctly, and you're just worried about survival rather than thinking forward. And I think it's it just sort of goes back to this principle: is, you know, fear God. You know, fear, I, I think some people kind of forgot that, or are forgetting that right now. You know, fear God, and have faith that God is going to you know guide you to the best decision possible. Um, because I think a lot of people are like, fear Donald Trump and do the opposite of him. <laughs> and I don't think that's the kind of proper way to live. It's not the proper way to think about things. Um, you know, fear God and let God's book and God's teachings guide you, uh, you know, to a decision where you feel comfortable. And, and do it out of, you know, like your love of God. You know, like there's this always this dilemma that's given to people. You know, do you fear God? Do you love God? Do it out of the love for God, you know. Um, that's really where, if we did a lot more things out of a love for God, we would be a lot better of an Oma, of a Muslim community um, that went out and really helped the community a lot more. Communities. Communities, yes. Helped <laughs> any number of different communities. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. So, Zakir, I was on Facebook the other day because, you know, it's what I do, or I think it's what a lot of us do, mm-hmm. and I read this really interesting, at the same time, hilarious slash heartbreaking quote on someone's page, and it basically said, 
I don't know why Muslims are so outraged that Trump wants to build a wall. We do it to the sisters in our mosques all the time. And this was said by Ilyas Lil Thunder Figueroa. And I thought it was such a poignant quote. And again, hilarious and heartbreaking. Because as women, we encounter so many barriers in, in a mosque. And for me, it's almost because we, we travel a lot. Mashallah, mm-hmm. we've had that blessing of being able to travel. And one of our favorite ways to explore a city is to go to their mosque. And for me, it's always met with anxiety. Zachary, you know this. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm anxious. I'm avoiding it. I try to look for excuses not to go. Because from the smallest things of, like, where the heck is the entrance? Mm -hmm. Right? It's just, like, this this crazy back door with no sign, nothing, um, by, like, some shady area. Right? And then it's usually a small space. Oftentimes, you can't even see the imam, which we know that if you can't see the imam, your prayer doesn't count. But I like to think Allah is forgiving, and I did my best, right? That's not my responsibility. Mm-hmm. So it's just really frustrating. We build a lot of walls for women in our mosques. Mm-hmm. I mean, so a little background. Anjum and I just moved to, uh, to Oregon from South Florida. And the South Florida experience was quite trek. I think the, the first mosque we went to... There, there weren't any cameras, right? That was the, uh, I don't want to say the Was mo- that the small one? The one that was north of Near us. the beach? No, no, that one, yeah. So. Yeah, so that one had a really small space, and there mm-hmm. actually were a lot of women there, which was nice, but very typical of many of the mosques I grew up in. It had those dividers mm-hmm. that literally, f- like, they looked like they were about to fall over on us. Like, can you imagine? You're up praying, but you can't focus because you think something that's like 30 pounds is about to fall on you. And interestingly, all of them were tipping over our way. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> did the men arrange this? Are they trying to kill their wives? <laughs> What's going on? I'm trying to keep you all in the, in the box, apparently. So that was one mosque that we went to. The next mosque was the mosque that was just north of us from where we were living. And why don't you describe that situation? You talking about the one we loved? No, no, no. Not the one that was not the one we loved. The one okay. that was just north of where we were living. Oh yes, the one that was really close mm-hmm. to us. Right. So that one had I had no idea how to get to where the women were, and it was a full like two minute extra walk to the very back of the building to go into the prayer area. And it wasn't even a prayer area; it was just like this extra utility room that the the school uses because there was a school there, an Islamic school, and they had laid down some carpet, and the women would pray back there for Friday prayer. Mm-hmm. And the first three times we went, the screen was not working because they had a screen set up to look into the men's area while the khutbah was being given. And I was like, every week. I went back trying to I tried to give them the benefit of the doubt like okay maybe they don't have funds to fix this okay maybe they don't have fun, like you know so by the third time I was like what the heck is going on so I asked some ladies and they were like oh yeah ha 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 I emailed the masjid president maybe I should contact him again and I was like lady this is about your iman like shouldn't she be taking this a little seriously but on the flip side I also know how we are socialized to be very passive in in patriarchal institutions like the mosque right Mm -hmm. and so the only time it didn't get fixed interestingly if you remember Mm -hmm. we met one of the board members Mm -hmm. at a dinner and we cornered him lovingly y'all lovingly (laughs) and told him what's up with this right Mm -hmm. and to his credit bless his heart he got the tv fixed and so that was great and then my other complaint was how on earth if i'm a new person to the mosque as Mm -hmm. a man i can walk straight in and i'm welcomed i know where the men are Mm -hmm. as a woman you're like where the heck do I go? Mm-hmm. So how do I get to the back door? So he put up a sign by the men's area that said women this way. So mm-hmm. to his credit, he did do something. Mm-hmm. But I think we can take it a step further. Why can't the men and women enter the same way? Are we that afraid of letting them mingle mm-hmm. to just separate later into the separate rooms? Mm-hmm. Why can't we do that? Why do we literally have to go through the back door? Yeah, I mean, at the mosque that I grew up in, the women prayed at the back. The men prayed at the front, and they entered from. They both entered from the same place, and there were never any problems. I went to that mosque probably for like a decade, and never a single issue. People respected each other, and actually, you know, because people came out of the same area, um, there was you know like a, a sense of community. There were like brothers and sisters. Oh, you know, like how are you doing, sister? Like there was a lot of caring about our sisters rather than t- kind of turning a blind eye to our sisters. 
I think another important thing to talk about is just, you know, where we found our peaceful place there was at this really wonderful mosque called Assalam Center. And that's located... Before we get into yeah. that, can I talk about another barrier? Sure, yeah. That, like, there's, like, the physical barriers that we just talked about, the, the weird back door and not having access to, like, seeing the imam and all that, and not having enough space in some places we've been to. Mm-hmm. But also think about the non-physical barriers we're putting up, right? Mm-hmm. So if the imam, who is a spiritual leader of this entire congregation, is completely inaccessible to me because he is in a separate area... Who do I go to when I need spiritual counseling, mm-hmm. when I need help, you know, for whatever it is? I'm physically cut off from him. And that is unacceptable. When you are the leader of a congregation, you are a leader to the, both the men and the women. You, mm-hmm. cannot, you cannot abandon half your flock, you know. And that's why these open masjid models or whatever you want to call them, like you just mentioned, the one you grew up in. Mm-hmm. Literally, it is so p- empowering to have an imam be able to look at you and say salam to you mm-hmm. and to know that you can just walk up to him and you don't have to go through a labyrinth and, and risk embarrassing yourself or risk being told you need to get out. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's why I want to go back to that example that I was going to start talking about, which is the Assalam Center in Boca Raton. Um, Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> this was a tremendous mosque, y'all. Um, you know, uh, I think there, there were, for Jama there were separate entrances for men and women. Um, the women actually got the easier entrance, which is straight ahead. The men actually had to go around the building um, to get to the prayer area. Uh, the women prayed at the back of the mosque. The men prayed at the front. There were no partitions or anything like that. They, they made sure that there was enough space um, for both the men and women to pray in the masjid. I think even also for Eid prayers, correct? For Eid prayer, you know, the first thing that happens, honestly, when things get tough is women get kicked to the curb. Mm-hmm. But on Eid prayer, they maintain that space at the back. They could have mm-hmm. easily said, no, we need you to leave because there are more men than women, but mm-hmm. they let us be there. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. And so one, actually, one, after one of the Jummas, we went up to the imam and want you to tell that story. It was amazing, y'all. Like, in my life, well, I'm telling you, like, I was, you know, quote-unquote, um, I grew up in the masjid, right? That was really important to my parents. And Alhamdulillah, that was great. I learned so much. And I never had access to the imam. Like, maybe when I was a kid, because I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But as soon as, like, puberty hit, uh-uh. You know, you stay on your side. You don't talk to him. So at the end of the Jummah, um, prayer. The imam was just out talking to people. I saw him like shaking hands with women, like "Salam, how are you?" And he knew them by name, and they felt so comfortable to come up to him and just talk to him, even joke with him, you know? Because mm-hmm. oftentimes I'll talk to like Islamic leaders, and they won't—they can't even look at me. Like they cannot even maintain eye contact. And maybe that's my own cultural bias because I grew up here. Eye contact is important to me, but I've never felt seen by a religious Muslim leader, right? Mm-hmm. And so we went up to him. We introduced ourselves. We talked. We joked. And later, he supported me by giving um, or introducing the congregation to, and I hope you all don't mind I'm using the word congregation, but Mm -hmm. to introducing everybody to my research because I was conducting my research at the time and I needed participants and he was willing to do that for me, which is amazing. Really, really amazing to see imams like that. I think one of the critical points of discussion on this topic is like, what kind of mosque do you want, you know, your daughters to grow up to, grow up in, you know? And if they feel like they can't grow up in that mosque, where do you think they're going to go? I think a lot of like Muslim parents are like, Oh, you know, my children, they don't grow up in the mosque. Well, maybe it's because they feel like they don't have a space in that mosque. And that's a problem. That is a huge problem. You know, I think I, I was reading uh, something that Zara Balu, who's the executive director of CARE San Francisco, uh, their area posted uh, a, a while ago. I just remember the story. It's like, you know, there were some guys that were smoking outside the mosque. And most people's reaction to that would be like, get off the mosque property. How dare you smoke? You heathens, leave, leave, <laughs> leave. But you know what? Like, I think, I think, I, I believe her approach was just like, you know, um, we'd be glad to have you guys come come on inside, um, and because y'all are part of our community. Um, and actually, after they were done smoking, they actually came in and, and became a part of that community. Uh, that's how you integrate people. That's how you bring people into the fold. That's how you p- make people feel like they aren't outsiders. But I think really a critical point on this discussion is that. And I'm going to issue this challenge to any mosque out there that wants to do this, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll come out, I'll fly out, I'll give, even give y'all an award if you practice this within your community. I want y'all to undertake this mission, okay? This is, we're going to call this the Just Muslim Podcast Mission. I want the Muslim, or, or the men, and the women to switch prayer spaces for a Friday. Yes. 
Call it a Freaky Friday switch. Okay. Just switch. Okay. And just so that you understand the perception of the other party. Okay. Because I think with a lot of mosques, people just don't know. They're like, oh, if I knew. Okay. Well, if you, and then, and then here's the thing. Don't just switch. Um, but have like a discussion about it. Like, how did y'all feel praying in the space? And then, you know, if the space was a closet, then all the men had to pray outside the building. Like, how did that feel? Right? Like, if you're getting all upset, then you suddenly understand what it's like for the Muslim sisters to under- to, to go through that experience. And I think that's just really critical. Okay? And, and this, is my, this is my promise. I'm going to throw it out to, all, to anybody who's listening to the podcast. If you can get your mosque to do this, okay? And then have a session in which y'all are talking about the experience of going through that. Like, record that session or let us know about, about what's going on right there. We'll put our contact information in yeah, the show notes. Yeah, holler at us on, on social media. And we will, I will personally actually come out to your mosque, okay? I will visit your mosque, and I will present you with an award because I'm waiting for the day for that to happen. Okay, this is an open invitation to any mosques out there. I mean, whichever one. I don't care if you're in the, in the boondocks of Mississippi. I don't care where you are. I don't care, you know, anywhere. Just in the United States, hopefully. Uh, go through that mission, and I'd be glad to come out there and really celebrate and honor your community because I think... Efforts like that really go far away. So, Zachary, by award, do you mean you're going to go to, like, Office Max and get one of those, like, fake Oscars? Uh, you know, that award will have to be <laughs> determined. I think it'll... TBD. I, you, listen, it's going to be a great award because you're going to be the only mosque in the country that has it. I'm only... I only got money for one trip. That's so. funny. <laughs> all right. So, uh, so open, open invitation to all of y'all. Y'all, we're going to kind of switch roles here. Um... And jump into a, an interview that we uh, are conducting with Afad Sheikh. So we'll go right into that right now. All right, joining us right now is Afad Sheikh, who is the former civil rights coordinator for the Council on Islamic Relations, Los Angeles chapter. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Afad, you've had a lot of different experiences with the Muslim community. Um, we were wondering, and we were, we really wanted to learn about those experiences. So, could you just tell us how you first became involved with care and social justice work? Yeah. Um, so, to really talk about that, I have to go all the way back into my past uh, to the time that I actually started as a freshman um, at the University of California, San Diego. It was um, right after 9-11, and basically when I got to campus, there was a lot of emotions, um, you know, running ar- running around through the community there. There's a lot of questions, there's a lot of anxiety and fear, and it was in that environment that I started um, as a freshman, and college is already kind of a difficult place to be um, when it comes to identity and who you are and the stuff you're studying. So um, given that context and layering a post-9-11 reality after that kind of placed me in a unique place where I searched out community um, of folks that were Muslim on campus. And that was actually the first time that I actually reached out to people that were from the same religious faith background as I was. Um, my childhood was spent in a very diverse community. I grew up around folks that weren't Muslim, and I didn't necessarily uh, place myself within the Muslim community like that. So identifying as Muslim really took hold and found its, um, found its uh Root while I was at UCSD, so that eventually led to me being involved with the MSA, uh, the Muslim Student Association on campus. Uh, I think for me, um, my involvement with the MSA and feeling that it was not the best of or the most effective of like organizing activism tools possible led me to get involved with CARE. Um, it was during my third year uh, involved in UCSD campus-related activities that I kind of felt that I was just repeating the same thing over and over again, and I wasn't really helping anybody. Um, the MSA wasn't really engaged in actual work that was effective and 
in my eyes, of course, like I didn't feel that I was really helping people or helping the community with the work that I was doing at the MSA. So I thought out the next best thing that I thought would provide that avenue and it was fair. Um, I started as an intern at the CARE Los Angeles office. I would commute from San Diego to Los Angeles, oh, wow. stay over at a friend's place, and intern. And that led to me um, being introduced to a group of people in San Diego who were interested in starting up the local San Diego CARE um, chapter and nonprofit organization. And that's how I got involved. I went from being simply an intern, interested in wanting to be more of an effective organizing and community activist and somebody who is actually um, making an impact on real policy issues and real community issues uh, to actually becoming somebody that did that for a living. Sure. I want to touch on a point that you just brought up, which is that you felt like the MSA was not sort of doing enough to fill the needs of what you had an ambition for. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk about uh, what sort of sustained you towards wanting to do this work when you were in an environment in which um, you weren't sort of going towards or accomplishing the things that you wanted to accomplish. Well, I think for me, like, um, I was never the type of person that really enjoyed going out there and telling people to convert to Islam or to become Muslim. <laughs> so, like, for me, like, that, that, that sort of mentality wasn't really all that appealing. Um, I was more attracted to the idea that my actions would speak for my faith and speak for the type of person I am. Um, so, I never engaged in the type of activities that I'm just organized um, in terms of, like, those even gel even evangelizing events, you know, like Dawa um, events, so I didn't do that. Um, And I wasn't all that interested in continuously doing the types of stuff where we were bringing speakers on campus and getting political and kind of like telling people, this is the story, this is the reality, this is what you need to believe in, because that, for me, also seemed ineffectual. Um, I, I didn't I didn't get the sense that we were really doing anything by putting on these educational events. Not to say that these educational events weren't important. They were. I just felt that I could be doing much more than this. Um, And I wanted to learn what that could be doing much more uh, looked like and felt like. Um, You know, I didn't didn't want to continue to just do the cyclical events year after year type of situation for the four years that four or five years that I was going to spend at the university and I knew people were really impacted by the events that were taking place during that time um, you know I met people in the community when I would go out to pray and when I would go out for events you know that that has real life stories about being um, impacted by some of the discrimination, some of the um, anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric that was taking place, and I felt like that was an injustice, and I felt that I needed to learn how to address that. I couldn't just put on an educational event, or I couldn't just put on a fundraiser sure. um, to, to, to deal with that issue. Something much more needed to come out of it, mm-hmm. and I think that's my own in, innate internal character. Um, probably that was speaking to wanting to do more Um, so uh, in that sense like I felt that MSA itself wasn't serving that purpose for me and I needed a different outlet for that sure Um, the MSA didn't you know the MSA didn't have problems I had problems that I need to go find solutions for sure well it sounds like about your personal and spiritual development and the way you were making sense of that identity was parallel with your growth as a social justice activist as well and care seemed to fit that for you at that time absolutely absolutely yes i do completely agree with that i think my spirituality was very much tied to my activism um you know that's the intersection at which i existed i i would uh admit to readily um, if I wasn't uh, if I wasn't doing something that was activism based, I felt like my spirituality was not activated either. 
Um, so to me, uh, social justice was as much part of um, becoming one with Allah, and um, without those two aspects, I did find myself being the, being a person of faith. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Afad, we'd like to turn to your experiences at CARE a little bit more at the moment. Um, and so, I, we were just wondering, uh, sort of, what would you deal with on a database basis at, during your experience at CARE? I mean, on a day-to-day basis, I was, uh, I came in as a, a civil rights coordinator. Okay. And my responsibility was to set up the de- department that was devoted to dealing with um, individuals in the communities that were faced, that were faced with discrimination, bullying, um, you know, anti-Muslim policies, anything that was that basically was affecting a, a Muslim's ability to be a first-class U.S. citizen. Um, and to that extent, it was my responsibility to set up the department, but then also to deal with those individuals that were affected by by the sort of um, sort of incidences and experiences. So on a day-to-day basis, I was dealing with um, being, you know, a freshly minted college graduate with a degree in, in his hand, very little knowledge about what I was doing, um, and actually dealing with people who were coming to the office with real-life um, problems, problems that affected their ability to make income and provide for their family, problems dealing with, like, their ability to seek an education, problems dealing with their life, uh, you know, uh, their, li- their their actual life and security issues. Um, so that was, that was right from the get-go what I was faced with. And I think um, as time went on, um, the, the issues only became more and more connected to what uh, what was going on um, in, in in the United States and across the nation? Um, I thought what the actual results were for the political rhetoric that was taking place. So I think that was the most impactful like experience that I had. Yeah. So it sounds like you spent a lot of time bearing witness to injustice, and that was a bulk of your work in helping people. But in helping them, you have to listen and empathize, and certainly with our identities as Muslims, there's a connection there with their suffering. So I'm curious, how did this work affect you personally and spiritually? Oh, it's it's immense. Um, That question in itself, like, uh, it kind of um, makes me feel uncomfortable because I I have to revisit that um, time period. it's hard. Uh, I mean, when I started, I was immediately faced with a situation where I was receiving upwards of two dozen calls a day, and I had to talk to individuals who basically had nowhere else to turn to in order to navigate um, the situation that they were in. And it was nonstop for me. Like, I was on the phone dealing with folks who had no other way to deal with the situation that they were in. And a lot of times, like, I I found myself feeling very uh, powerless. Um, I couldn't do anything except listen to them. Um, and that was, a, you know, in retrospect, I think that's, that was a significant thing for me to be able to do because a lot of times people don't even um, have anyone that, they, that will listen to them, right? But back then, like, that, that, that feeling that I had in these particular circumstances was that I am incapable of helping these people, and I have to sit and, and sit and listen to this and their story, and at the end of it, I have to tell them I can't help them. Um, and I felt so guilty about that, and I felt so rotten about it. Um, and that repeats itself over and over again, day in, day out. And being a community, or somebody who works in the community, like I, I never got a chance to have a break. Um, if I went to the mosque, I would see people that were calling my office. Um, if I went to an event, or I even went with friends to a restaurant, I would run into people in the community who were calling my office, and I would 
be responsible for addressing whatever issue it is that they needed addressed. So I think for me, like, it definitely impacted me spiritually and emotionally in the sense that I did feel like I needed to withdraw from the community. I couldn't be in the community as much as I wanted to. I couldn't go out um, to places. Um, and definitely going to the mosque was never that spiritual, like, fulfilling, like, experience because I was always, um, I was always worried that, okay, I'm going to have to address some issue and spend an hour or two hours um, with individuals in the community talking about their issue um, and, and not be able to just go in and simply pray and, and make, make uh, you know, make my supplications and just kind of contemplate my existence. So I did find myself withdrawing quite a bit, I think, um, in terms of both how I was uh, emotionally and spiritually. Okay, yeah, I mean, it sounds like that was a really challenging time for you, and understandably, you were, like I said, wearing, bearing witness to a lot of injustice, and in many ways, there's only so much help we can offer, but as a counselor, I know and I like to think, and the research shows that just bearing witness to someone's pain and empathizing is huge in their own working through their trauma. So you kind of already addressed this. It seems like scaling back on your interactions with the Muslim community there helped you to kind of find space for your own self. But what, what other ways did you use to take care of yourself? What other self-care did you um, involve yourself in? Man, so self-care was not something that I actually was aware about, <laughs> but nor did I actually seek it uh, during my time at care. Um, because I, I, I think it was just the nature of my work. Um, my work wasn't just something that existed in terms of um, what I was doing on a day-in, day-out basis of dealing with people's cases and trying to address immediate concerns and um, manage the department that I was responsible for. But it was also cyclical in terms of like whatever events were happening nationwide or internationally, I was part of the conversation um, in the office that dealt with how do we address this? What do we need to put out there? What um, what sort of what sort of conversations do we need to be having internally with the community and externally with with folks that um, are allies, our partners, as well as the media? So. The nature of my job didn't really create that opportunity for for self care, um, and, and I think like I found um, I found myself doing uh, doing a lot of different things that were really haphazard. Um, like I, I, you know, I would eat. <laughs> um, I'd eat a lot. Like that's where I would get my break. Um, you know, my break from the day to day to day issues was when I went out and I ate um, with folks or sat down with um, organizations that I work with and we had a meal together to talk about or plan or organize. Um, or, you know, it would be uh, going to visit my parents on the weekend. I would basically leave uh, my apartment and everything and just spend the weekend vegetating at my parents' house. Um, that was really the only opportunity where I didn't get to have to like discuss community issues or talk about my work so um, I, I actually enjoyed those visits a lot um, I think self-care for me became more of an issue after I left care um, I realized how internally damaged I was um, in terms of my spirituality and just everything else um, it was all muddled up inside and I didn't quite um, have answers to fundamental questions um, that, you know, prior to me actually starting this work, I was firmly able to answer. Sure. Um, you, you talked about how you, you sort of struggled with dealing with that self-care after uh, leaving care. Do you feel like there are... Um, there are ways in which, in the years that followed, in which you tried to deal with the issue, or do you still is that something that you still struggle with today? Um, okay, so I, I, I 
I know, and I know that's a that's a that's a highly personal question that I just asked. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, just, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to answer because I think it's really important to have this conversation. Um, we don't have this conversation, and I think a lot of us, um, that at least um, within the Muslim community, we, we guilt ourselves into this idea that this is peace of you, Allah. You know, we're doing this work for Allah, um, and then we don't recognize uh, the, the, the need to actually address the flip side of what that means. Um, we can only do work for Allah as long as we are connected to Allah. And if we're not taking care of our spiritual needs and our internal like connection to Allah, there, there is no peace of Allah, I think. Um, it's really hard to maintain that. And I think that that's part of the problem with activists and passion. Um, passion is something that's um, very much fleeting. It's, it's, it's only going to take us so far. Um, you know, if you don't tend this fire that we call passion, um, and you don't take care of it, 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 it goes out, and it sputters out, and then what are you left with? You're not left with anything. Um, and I think when I found myself in that situation, I, I, I said I couldn't answer fundamental questions. One of those fundamental questions was, why was I doing this? Mm-hmm. I couldn't answer that, and um, I didn't know why I was doing it. And that, for me, was really um, disheartening and, and um, difficult, um, because that's not who I was when I started uh, working at CARE. Mm-hmm. I clearly had answers to that, answers to that question. Um, so I think, for me, at this point, like I have found ways of dealing with self-care. I, I understand myself much, much better than I understand I stood myself when I was like there. Um, and I know that there are certain things that I have to do in order to maintain myself mm-hmm. and be functional. Um, and those are very particular to me. Like, I know that I can only take so much of socializing mm-hmm. and being in the midst of people. And after a certain time period, like, I have to withdraw and give myself personal time. True. When I was like there, I didn't realize that that was something I needed psychologically or emotionally. Uh, I, you know, that, that's not a realization I had at that time. It's only something I, I found now. Um, I also find that my attraction towards nature and being in the outdoors wasn't just about, like, oh, spending time with friends in the outdoors like it used to be when I was in college. Um, being in nature in the outdoors is actually part of my rejuvenation process. Like, that's how my body feels like it can rejuvenate itself and do better. So things like that, I feel like I only understood better when I was, I guess, broken and and, and trying to mend myself after my experiences with death. Yeah, thanks for sharing with us, Afad. I mean, it sounds like what you experience was is what we know as vicarious um, exposure and there's a lot of research that shows and interestingly they've done this research mostly in counselors and doctors but they've also done some studies in lawyers um, but people that bear witness to acts of injustice often end up with some symptoms of that trauma themselves and so self-care is a really important part of that and recognizing that you're feeling this way and that it's okay to feel this way. And you said this, we don't talk about this enough in Muslim communities, you know. Um, It's, you know, grin and bear it. We're so lucky to even be here. Um, All kinds of stuff that we hear about we don't get depressed, we don't get anxiety, we don't get this way or that way, but the reality is we're human. And the human experience is much more common than we are led to believe. And we all experience these hardships. So thanks for sharing your experience with us because I know it's not easy to do that. I, and Afad, I just had a follow-up question for you. I think you know there might be some listeners of our show that are younger activists that are certain, certainly the just becoming or on the verge of coming into this realm in which they want to be participating in activism. Uh, and so we were wondering what recommendations would you offer them? Oh man, uh, that, that's a really good question. Um, and my response is probably not a response most young activists would want to hear. Um, and I certainly understand where they're coming from because I've 
I, I, I probably wouldn't want to hear this either if I was in their shoes. But I really think like activism um, has a time and a place. Um, one shouldn't come to activism simply with a passion and a desire. Activism is something that requires a solid foundation. Um, it requires not just the experience of being an activist and doing like activism work and organizing, but it also, I think, fundamentally requires knowing oneself as well as knowing one's relationship to God, um, especially if you're doing this work as a Muslim and as somebody who um, believes in Allah. Like, if your connection to Allah is not strong and your ability to um, understand yourself and how you react to situations and cope with situations and, you know, you don't have the capacity to actually be an activist for the long term, I think. Um, you're going to burn out, I think, and that's uh, something I can experience. I, I can speak from experience. And it's not just simply that, but I think it also leads people to um, very dangerous ground. I think um, not having a solid foundation about your spirituality um, and not knowing how you respond to situations can lead to behavior and uh, it you know, exhibit like certain attitudes and, and, and responses that, that, that are just, you know, I, I don't know how else to describe them, but um, sad or very self-destructive to a certain degree. Um, and I think like activism can wait. Um, you have your entire life being an activist. Uh, you can definitely focus on the more necessary internal steps uh, internal structural building as well as like you know focusing on um, the spiritual connection um, that you need in order to do this work and then come to this work um, and do it uh, but like I said I, I feel like that's not that's not an, that's not an answer that folks who are young activists would actually um, take kindly to Sure. Well, you know what? We, we really want to honor your perspective. I think you've shed light on a lot of really important issues. And, you know, our show is not just about covering sort of mainstream opinions on these things, but really getting towards beyond what the label of being Muslim is and getting towards, you know, the inner truths that we have within each other because of our experiences. So we really appreciate you joining us on today's show. Thank you. I really, I'm really appreciative of the structure um, and opportunity to share uh, my experience. This week on Anjum is Angry About. Oh, Zahir. So today I'm angry about something that happened to me a few weeks ago. I'm still thinking about it, clearly. Um, basically, aunties be policing others in a really harsh way. I'm like, who do you think you are? Right? Like the CIA. So I was at uh, Juma in Houston, Texas, where I'm from, and I won't name the mosque. So most masjids have like this masjid monitor that tries to make sure everything's going smoothly. There's enough space for everybody. And so I appreciate that organization, right? But this auntie was taking her monitor position to a whole new level. I mean, aggressively hunting down other people with children, other women, and forcing them into the children's only area, which was at the back, okay? Like literally, I remember her having this conversation with this auntie, and the auntie's like, "She's eleven. She's not going to do anything. She's going to sit next to me." And then I'm just like, "No, you have to move." Like there was no reasoning with this woman. It's all black and white thinking, right? Mm-hmm. And then constantly, like I'm sitting there trying to make dua. I'm sitting there trying to pray my sunnah before Juma starts, and she's constantly talking about like what we should be doing. Stay a suck for a lot of young young women. Um, we are, uh, we need it nowadays. And then another <laughs> point, and I'm like, "What auntie? What?" Like, what do you know I have to say a sukhfarullah for? We all have stuff to say a sukhfarullah for, right? And then another point, you know, she's like laying on that mom guilt. She's all like, listen, women, your daughters are watching what you do. This is our next generation. I'm like, oh, my God, the mom guilt. Can you just stop? And I really just wanted this woman to just stop talking and let me focus in on my dua. So that made me really angry. And I swear to God, next time if I'm in that much, I'm going to be like, look, auntie. And I'll do it with respect because there are our elders. But like, look, auntie, I just want to sit here and I want to pray. Can you just let me do that? All right. I mean, listen, ma'am. 
This is the mosque police. It's serious business. Next time I'm coming over to the men's side and praying in the mosque. <laughs> Legit. Like, you seriously? <laughs> and you know what's hilarious? Because at this mosque, there's, like, double-sided mirrors. Mm-hmm. Or when... Mirrors? Yeah. So, like, we can see into the men's section, right? And so... One-sided mirror, sorry. And so I remember seeing all these dads walking with their kids. And mm-hmm. that really made me happy. Because I also think, is there a men's kids-only section, too? Mm-hmm. And I remember you were praying at that mosque. And you mm-hmm. said there wasn't. So I was like, oh, Zach. So, you know, it's helpful to have a partner who's of the other gender so you can like compare notes and so i remember asking hey was there like an uncle monitor who's saying all these obnoxious things to you and zach is like nah man we're all chill and i'm like what is this why do we do this to ourselves listen it's not about your prayer it's about the way that she wants you to pray oh my god So all I'm going to say is, I said a prayer for you, okay? And it was with love. And I said lots of lovely things. But one of the things I did pray for was to go to that mosque and not have to encounter that again. So lovely, <laughs> <laughs> uh, lovely uh, effort to have some organization. Really poor on the execution, all right? So that's what I'm angry about this week. Reflection is an important part of our faith as Muslims, and I think as a counselor, definitely is an important part of my own practice and getting to know myself better. So we think it's appropriate that we talk about a just Muslim reflection of the week, and this week, Zakir has something that happened recently. So outside of doing this podcast, one of the things that occupies my time is that I'm a professor at a local community college here in Oregon, and... One of the things I allowed my students to do this week was to get extra credit for going to a volleyball game. Our our college is currently undefeated, our women's team, which is a really fantastic achievement. And so I saw one of my students at the game. Her name is Debbie. Um, she's I, I believe she's in a, a student who's about in her either in her fifties or her sixties. And when before the term came upon us, she talked to me about how you know, she had, you know, raised her kids and she had seen all of these other people have these various other experiences, but she wanted to go back and she wanted to achieve for herself, which I think is really just tremendous. You know, some of my best students actually have been the ones that are returning to school later in life that have all these wonder, really wonderful lived experiences that they can contribute to the classroom. And so I saw Debbie at the game. She was there with her wonderful husband and also with her son. And it was just really tremendous to kind of just see the students outside of the setting of the classroom. I think that we sometimes in higher education just see our students as students and sometimes we don't see them as people that have, you know, these families and have these experiences and, you know, these experiences outside the classroom. So for me, it was really tremendous to just see, um, you know, she had a son that was developmentally... um, Disabled. disabled and uh you know just meeting him and just seeing him so happy and she told me that you know he was having such a great time watching the ball being hit back and forth and that was so exciting and uh I think her husband talked about how he had never been to a game and just how that sort of experience meant something to them it was really really tremendous and so you know, in reflecting upon that experience I think we as educators need to put ourselves in positions where we get to see our students, not just the students. Um, and we need to create environments in which that can happen. I think uh, you know, not often enough do we allow spaces for that to happen. So, you know, just other things that I was reflecting upon is just thinking about how, you know, some of my colleagues when I was in grad school would have their office hours in the cafeteria so that they would be more approachable. Um, But it was really just tremendous for me to just be a part of this experience in which I was able to really connect with my students outside the classroom and see them for all that they are, rather than just the students that they are. All right, folks, so that is this episode of Just Muslim. Thanks for hanging out with us and listening to us rant and rave and hopefully discuss, you know, intellectually, intelligently some topics. Mm, Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) All right, well, we just want to give a couple of shout-outs here, uh, a couple of thank yous. We definitely want to thank Afad Sheikh for joining us on the program today. Um, He's our first guest, our first honorary guest, and he did a really great job. I thought he was really tremendous in that interview and it's not easy to talk about what he talked about right and so that took courage and we really honor that he was able to do that for us because i hope that everyone out there learned a lot from what he had to say i know we did definitely definitely learned a lot i want to thank my co-host 
Anjum for her valuable contributions. Dr. Ashraf. Sorry, Dr. Ashraf. Only he has to call me that, y'all. You don't have to. <laughs> it's weird being your partner and having to call you doctor, <laughs> which <laughs> the whole episode in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, I'm Zocker, signing out right here from the Just Muslim Podcast. We hope that you will join us on our next episode. And if you have anything to say, you can find us on Facebook by facebook.com forward slash Just Muslim Podcast. We hope to hear from you. Until next time, salam.